We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of country throughout Australia where this podcast was recorded and recognise their continuing connection to land, waters and culture. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Hi there, I'm Daniel Moore and you're listening to Season 3 of the Hearing Architecture Podcast, proudly sponsored by Brickworks. This is the final episode in the series where we're talking to architects about what it's like working on projects for themselves. Our guest in this episode is architect John Elway, whose office is based in Queensland. John shares how living in Japan and working on building sites influenced his unique home, learning how to extend a tight budget without sacrificing design outcomes, and why getting away from the computer and learning how things actually get made served him well when working with builders and subcontractors. I'll now pass over to Genevieve Vella, who is an Imagine Committee member based in Queensland. Let's jump in. So I'm here today with John Elway, an architect in Brisbane. We're here to talk about his design and his home, Terranium House. The series we're talking about today is Architects Own Homes, and it's great to have you on board because your house has won regional, state and national awards within the RAIA. So it'd be great to hear how that process went for you and went for your family. So thank you so much for joining us today, John. Well, thank you. And more importantly, you came to visit this morning, so you've actually seen the house in real life and we're um, not just making this up on the fly, which is fantastic. No, it's been, it was lovely to, to come over and see it in its lived-in state because there's always the beautiful pictures and the beautiful magazine pictures of homes and architectural homes and it, there's something about seeing a lived-in house that is a testament to good design and a well-thought-out home in terms of how it works. And children's toys everywhere yes. as well. <laughs> yes. <laughs> things, things have changed a little bit since we first moved in, so yeah, that's, that's life, isn't it? You know, <laughs> I'm sure we'll talk about that in a minute. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. The purpose of hearing architecture, which we discussed this morning, was to be able to give a bit of a behind the scenes or a more of a raw look into what goes into design, how architects think and how we bring value to projects. And usually the case is the projects are for someone else. But in this case, the project was for yourself and for your family. And with that, I'm sure came a different set of pressures and a different set of experiences than possibly your project experience prior to embarking on designing your own home. I guess it would be great to understand essentially in your career before you started designing your home, whether some projects or experiences, where were you at in your career before you embarked on designing a house for yourself? I guess like many, many Australians, I got the bug for doing up a house a little bit earlier on before I studied architecture. And that was quite fun. I was on the tools with the builder. So that kind of set me on the course of this is something I want to keep doing. I kind of also spent a fair bit of time overseas in Japan in particular, and it was that kind of time over there where you realize that the house that you grew up in as a child is not the be-all and end-all, and there are other options and other ways to live, and things might look different to the kind of, you know, in my case, it was a suburban house brick and tile roof sort of thing and you know that there's other ways that people live in particular you know in Queensland here there's timber houses and older Queenslanders and then my experience in Japan was like a lot of smaller housing and more kind of public connections to community and and towns and so forth so that kind of set a course of realizing that that there are options 
And I guess the other big experience for me was when I did start studying architecture, I worked for James Russell for about eight years. And on top of designing things, we were doing a lot of building as well. So it's that kind of being on site and that kind of construction experience. Like I wasn't a great carpenter. I was really great at demolition, but you know, those opportunities to be able to see how things actually really get put together and what's really important really set up a lot for me. Yeah, that sounds like a really bespoke experience. Like it's interesting, architects and their relationships with builders is really important. And a lot of different architects come in a different way, but it's important for every project, but especially in in crafting a home, especially the training house is well thought through. And you had mentioned today that there was a lot of on-site collaboration happening in the creation of that home and that would be something you've probably taken into your practice forward of the house. Leading on from your experiences and the opportunities you you gained working with James Russell here in Brizzy and being able to actually get on the tools (laughs) on the sites, which is, is, is a great experience. Leading on from that, did you get the opportunity to do any houses as John Alway architect before you got started on Terranium House or was Terranium House the kickoff for John Alway architects? Yeah, this was definitely the kickoff and it was fairly intentional as well. Like I think transitioning from working with someone and then going out on your own, you've kind of got to have a strategy. And in my case, I didn't grow up in a family with lots of connections. I didn't have school friends that needed work done. So you kind of got other ways you can go about it. You can plug away at bathroom renovations and decks and so forth and slowly scale up. But my thought was, hey, I I think the best way is to show people what I want to do and what I can do. And that was essentially jumping off the cliff and doing your own thing and using it as an example to try and get work as well. And at the same time, you know, needing somewhere to live, which is quite important as well. Yeah, a real double-sided investment, an investment in your business and a one-to-one model of the type of architecture you want to practice and the type of ethos you want to bring to your design work. So that's a fantastic thing to hear as a young architect, using your own home as that kind of it's a big risk and obviously a big investment but it seems to have really paid off and unfortunately i've still got a mortgage but yeah. <laughs> we'll get through that eventually what have i got 30 years to deal with that yeah how many houses have we got to design yeah. <laughs> to get that out would you say it'd be fair to say that it is quite a common assumption for everyday people to think that architects have this inherent desire to design their own home and that's a dream every architect has? Would you say that that's true for you? Is that always been a dream before you started studying architecture that you'd like to live in a home that you designed? Um, I guess less so before I started architecture, but definitely while studying it, you know, like it becomes a thing that you can experiment and show ideas and try something that you might not normally do with a client straight away. And that was one of the great things about doing this house is one of my first projects on my own. And it's a nice way to kind of perfect those ideas and have them to show people so that they can kind of come in and understand that you know a house that's small in scale that opens in certain ways and has certain detailing and different approaches actually stacks up and works yeah for sure I mean it's funny when you you're studying architecture there's so much to learn and so much to see and be able to distill that down and find out what are the big movers for you and where do you think the importance and the study needs to go so it's wonderful to see the house so well received 
from all that study and experience and work on site. I want to kind of pick your brain on a more human side to the build. Was there much preparation going into preparing yourself and your family to design this home together? Was there much build up to get to that point? And then how did you guys prepare to go through the process? Yeah, I guess um, Amber and I were only newly married. So we were kind of, you know, in some ways still working each other out as well. And we, you know, we didn't have a child and we didn't know if we were actually going to. So kind of designing a house where you don't really know what you're going to be doing in five to 10 years as well. And I think a lot of clients are the same as that. You know, people kind of want to design for, you know, maybe they've got two fresh kids or something and you're designing with that focus. But I think it's really important. You've got to think ahead five, 10 years. And when those kids are at high school or at uni, like what changes? And maybe when they leave home, what changes as well? So you you start to to talk through ideas about like, you know, kids might come back with partners and want to stay at Christmas and you need a bit of space for that or ways to adapt the house. And that was the same thing with our house as well. Like we didn't know if we'd have one or two or three kids We're definitely not having that many. But <laughs> so this house has got little kind of places where things can tweak over time, you know. So having you and Amber gone through the process of finding the right site, designing, going through the build and the stress and the pressures and, you know, the program challenges as that come with getting a house that you want to move into. Were there any big lessons that you learned that you've been able to pass on to your now future clients that you're designing houses for? Have you felt any experiences have helped make it smoother for those future clients? Yeah, I think we had fairly significant budget restraint that we needed to have. And so there's a lot of time kind of spent challenging, like how big does this need to be and what can we do within the certain amount of money we got? And thinking about that in terms of using inexpensive materials and making them all work hard. And for example, like there's many different timber species in this house, but really all you can see is two. There's black butt, which is clear finished. And then there's a lot of stained timber as well in kind of a Japan black. And the reason we did that was that it meant that we could use kind of standard timber frame windows and like pine tongue and groove flooring and like on the ceilings and in other places. So you could kind of use the appropriate material dollar wise, but tie it all together visually. So it's kind of like learning some of those techniques, which was really important. Other things I guess we learned that I've taken on to other projects is ideas around repetition, whether that's materials or like planting, like using a palette of plants repetitively and kind of, yeah, like a kind of one of the golden rules I have is like to try and keep things to like about five materials maximum throughout the house and just push them really hard and use them in different ways. So the project doesn't kind of become this visual busy mess, I guess you'd say. Yeah. And then I guess the final thing is like coming back to what we were just talking about, it was that idea of adaption as well, not knowing where we'd be in, in a few years and trying to make this house, but other houses that I've done since like actually change over time, whether it's walls can move or openings open in such a way that, that they can be opened up or closed off to kind of make a space more open or more private. In our house, there's like a lovely kind of 
garden area up at the top of the void. And the idea there was that we could turn that into a study at some point if we wanted by adding a little bit more balustrade. There's a few other other little ideas there as well. It was definitely really exciting to see that wall to the master bedroom and that what is now the plant space and the way that you were able to shift that external wall of the building was really exciting to see and you could just tell that you would have worked with the builder on site with that and learnt some amazing ways to do it differently or better and, and brought into your future houses. So it's all those thoughtful elements in your home that architects and yourself bring to uh, everyone else's homes. For me, that was really exciting to see because it just completely changed the way you think about how you use the whole home as one big space instead of small individual spaces. That's probably a good example of how the house kind of also adapts just throughout the day or throughout the year. Mm -hmm. So that large panel you're talking about up high above the void will typically leave that open a lot of the time in summer and you get these lovely kind of breezes that come through the house but because it's up high you can leave it open while you go out to the shops and not worry about security so you kind of only having to lock one or two doors and then kind of in terms of adaption throughout the year you know in winter we we live with the house quite closed up you get the concrete floor heats up early in the morning with the sun kind of deep and low that warms the house most of the day and so yeah it's kind of like just applying those real simple first principles you learn in first year at uni and making them work for you there's so many layers of thoughtfulness in the design of the home. And I guess my question for you in terms of those layers of thoughtfulness that have now come out into the home and they're built and they're there, how long would you think that the project was, you know, on the drawing board per se or in your mind starting to come into creation? Did you feel like it stayed on the board for for quite a while before it got into site or how did that process go, you know, before dirt was turned on the site? So we we spent... A fair bit of time trying to find a house, mainly one that in this particular area. We lived in an apartment and wanted to stay here, but you know, it's one of these inner city suburbs that's really expensive. So it took a lot of time to find something that was just a total crap box, basically, that we could <laughs> afford. And this house was, you know, ready to kind of fall down, really. Like it had had a fire and it had termites, all of those sorts of things. So, you know, it took a while to find the house. But once we did, we actually couldn't live here. It was kind of inhabitable. So I spent probably a good six months designing a whole scheme and got to the point of a bit of early pricing and realized that we just couldn't afford it. So what was actually built is version two of the house. And I had to kind of pull this together like literally in about a fortnight after the first one just didn't work money-wise. So I guess there was a lot of background stuff that happened in prep to this point, but what actually got built was put together really quickly. Yeah, that's really interesting to hear that you spend so much time on a design and thinking it's through and then you have to then pivot when you get a new piece yeah. of information. It's one of those things that I like to do with client houses as well, but is like have backups and, and fallback points as well when we're designing. So, you know, I think most clients are trying to do something they probably can't afford as a starting point. And so 
it, it's good to try and get to those goals, but know, I guess, in the way you actually lay things out or detail things, know that you can turn some things off, I guess, and still have a really great project if the plan like is great and it ticks all the fundamental boxes and knowing that you've got the ability to kind of roll back if you need to budget-wise, super important. Yeah, definitely important. And that managing of expectations is something architects come up against every day is it it's the expectations of council expectations of client and then you know expectations from the bank <laughs> so it, it's good to hear that it's really easy to design a building i think it's really hard to like get through all those hurdles and get it built um yeah. and, and it be built like you you intended it so yeah exactly i guess um that kind of leads me to understanding like you've obviously had some great experiences working with other architects prior to, to, you know, embarking on your own home. What went into building a good team around you to deliver Trinium House and and to get it across the line? How did you go about pulling together a, a team and a brain's trust to get it together? Yeah, I think the engineer was really important. It was a guy named Josh Neal who helped me do a lot of structural gymnastics to kind of achieve so many openings and large areas of glass in this house. But he's the kind of the guy that could make it work with me in a really simple way as well, so it was buildable. The other, I think, most important group was the finishing trades and kind of collecting those people like, you know, the Tyler, a colleague I worked with, Ash Brown, who did a lot of the steel work, like the stairs and the balustrades and all those really lovely things that you touch. And then another guy, um, uh, Richard Curtin, who was did the render and the solid plaster in the house. These are all people that do really fine work and think people that I'd worked with previously on other projects. So kind of getting in them towards the end and making those kind of special bits that you you interact with the most, making them really great was really important. Yeah. Oh, we also, um, interestingly was the cabinetry for this project was all done by a furniture maker that hadn't really done cabinetry before. And I kind of, part of the, the idea there, I guess, was they wanted to do something they hadn't done before as a bit of an experiment. Uh, and I knew that because they were furniture makers, they would have a really fine kind of attention to detail about how they carried that out. So that was really successful as well. That was unmasked furniture. Oh, wonderful. I didn't know that. Did you approach a lot of these contractors separately to form the, the team or did they come to you through the builder? Like how did the, the lead builder feel about having other groups invited in that, that maybe they hadn't worked with before? Oh, look, I think the builder, because I was an architect and had specific people that were happy to kind of take that on board and and make it work. Have you taken any of this team forward to other projects or have you approached your clients' houses post-Terranium House with the same kind of cherry-picking of a build team? Typically with client projects, I like to let the builder kind of make decisions on who's doing those bits of work, given that they're, you know, really under their control. But there's the occasional trade where I'll be like quite specific and try to make it work. Um, In particular, my um, fellow that does the render and solid plaster work, he's like the only guy that I've been able to find that can do such beautiful edges and such a beautiful finish. And I do everything I can to get him on, on the jobs that I do. Yeah, it's, it's very interesting. And in only a few projects, that craftsmanship is really important in a house that's got so many 
layers to it to come together to be truly successful and it's interesting to hear that that carries into other projects not just you know that one architect's house it's a ethos that can be brought forward into other people's homes and appreciation for craft is is starting to get more and more traction I feel in in how people see a building coming together there's a a more respect for the the labor and and the, the artfulness that goes into it I'm fairly open about like clients what builders they use as well like if I haven't worked with someone before, use it as an opportunity to have someone new to work with again. And I think the same goes for their trades as well. Like your a recent project had the most amazing tiling crew on it and I really hope that I can keep using them again and maybe suggesting them to other builders. So I think it's it's good to not be closed-minded about those things and it's, it's like working with a new builder might have a different way of doing particular details or achieving particular details, I guess, and you can learn a lot from them, which is, I guess, what happened with working with James on site as well, like really getting away from the computer and, and learning how things actually fit together and are made is really important. Yeah, definitely. There's a very common saying within the architecture profession that design is kind of a never-ending process. You're always learning, you're always refining, you're always approaching something a little bit differently next to time just to try and make it even better. I guess living inside one of your designs could present quite an interesting self-reflective process. You know, you're living in in a, a design you've created. Have there been any lessons learnt in your design process within the house that living in it you, you've learned post-design? One of the more uncertain parts of the project was the, the kind of external circulation, so the set of stairs that sit outside. So you go, you exit the upper floor, go outside and come back in again. And I kind of knew that I would be able to live with that and would enjoy it, but I wasn't totally sure that Amber would. But it ended up being really lovely and she loves it. And a lot of clients come to visit and they go, oh, uh, I get this, I want this, like just like literally by experiencing it once or twice going up and down. So that works really well. In terms of other self-reflection or changes, towards the end of the job, I, I cut a few things out, like a, a window in in the main bedroom and realized that that was a mistake. So we kind of added that back in the next year. We kind of set ourselves like a, a $10,000 a year kind of budget for the first couple of years to, to make tweaks or add things. So we didn't have all the wardrobes in the front rooms the first year and then that was our first thing. And then we added the shed, which is my studio in the backyard, kind of did the, the landscape over time and, and changed a few bits there. So I think all of these projects, just like client projects, they evolve over time as well. And kind of setting expectations with clients that, hey, there's room for this place to change over time and that's okay. It probably won't be perfect the day you move in and it's a slow process and that's okay. So, Have you had any sessions with your clients who are now living in the homes you've designed them where you've come back together six or 12 months post-move in and had another walkthrough and if they want to change anything afterwards? I find it usually takes a little bit longer than that. Maybe their kids or something are growing up. So we've got to, you know, change the way their like bedrooms are set up a little bit or like, you know, they might've been sleeping in the same room together for those early years and now they want to be in separate rooms. So that kind of will happen. I think it's good. A bit like those kind of points where we can adapt a budget 
also be able to adapt the project as well, whether it's rearranging rooms or maybe removing a wall or just knowing that those are options for the future. Yeah, it's interesting we think about a house not as this stagnant thing. It kind of, it's about, there's a lot of discussion now around ageing in place and how a house grows with you and adapts like you said just before, adapts as you move through different phases of life. And I think it's a wonderful to, for people to hear that if you just kind of change your way of thinking about a house in the day that you're designing it and thinking five, ten years in the future, what would you do differently on day one so it has the ability to shift? You don't have to do everything day one. You can stage it out. Like you kind of stage your house like, big corporation stage a master plan or stage a, a suburb so I think that's a really exciting way to think about housing and to think about how we might stage our budgets and stage our expectations and, and grow with a house instead of trying to get everything day one yeah and it's kind of like what's the most sustainable way to build it's to not keep knocking it down and building afresh or ripping things completely apart. And so if you can design with a bit of adaptability, people are going to live and stay in their houses longer and it won't go to waste. So there's a house that I did at Paddington a year or two ago called Three House and it's called that name because it's kind of got three different ways it can be set up. At the moment, it's like a, a large house with a granny flat to the side and it can be made into one really large house by linking those two areas. Um, and then the third way is the granny flat and then the main house can be split in two. So you end up with like three little apartments with all their own like kind of entry and address to the street. So that was, I think, quite successful as a way to think as well. And clients kind of get on board with that thinking. It might be not something that they're even worried about at the start, but they kind of see a lot of value as an architect that you're bringing ideas about how the house or the building in general might change over time that they'd never thought of. So, yeah, it works quite well. Yeah, I think that's a really great hope for the future of how people think about housing. So obviously you wanted to start your own practice as a sole practitioner before you'd begun Terranium House. Did the process of designing your own home, building it and living in it change or influence the way you wanted to practice architecture post being in the house or was it everything kind of starting to settle into place? Yeah, I think I was probably at the point where I'd been working for someone the like eight years beforehand and had really established a lot about how I wanted to operate and what was important. There were certain things about the house, like it reinforced to me that size could be small and it's been a really great tool to kind of bring clients through and show them that, you know, 100 and five to 120 square meters of house can still actually feel sizable. I guess the important thing is I would say to kind of younger architects or students is those kind of first jobs that you have out of university or while you're at university are really important. In my case, it was working with James and the approach of the people that you're with really kind of send you in a certain direction, I think. So it's really important to, I think, choose wisely and think about where you want to want to work and put a heap of effort into contacting and getting to work in the place that you do want to. I guess I wanted to round out our conversation around your home. And I mentioned earlier that it's won lots of lovely awards and had beautiful words written about it. And you've had the opportunity to talk about it frequently, which is so great to be able to share the house and share the design and also just 
share the thinking so that people might be able to, you know, learn, learn from it. Have you ever thought about what it might be? To, it's kind of going to become a case study house. So are we going to be studying it possibly at university? Like we studied, say, the D house <laughs> when we were at university. Have you had any thoughts around how the house might be used as a bit of a learning tool in the future and what that might mean being a family home? Oh, look, it's, <laughs> it's, um, it's a funny question. It must be on some list because there's a lot of archie stalkers come and visit. Like <laughs> I think I've given a tour of this house to so many people and maybe you were the last person in Brisbane. <laughs> so it's, it's great that you finally came to visit. <laughs> But I mean, I really enjoy it. Like I think my family don't mind. And I think it's nice to be able to show different ways to think about things. You know, you don't have to raise a house all the ways. It can be like look lovely from the street and not sit up in the air. You know, there's all, all lots of different things about this house that I think help people maybe take a different approach. Yeah. But I would say, I think I would hope that my work in the future is as interesting or more interesting because I think you kind of like y your best work should always be the thing that you're currently working on. So hopefully that's the case. <laughs> yeah, you're not gonna you're not gonna do it again. You're gonna gonna find another house, another site, just to to try something new. Oh, I would love to, but um, I'd have no idea how I'd pay for that at the moment. The <laughs> property market's nuts. <laughs> Well, it's been absolutely wonderful talking to you, John. And I know today we kind of focused more on some bigger concepts and some more process-related stuff, but I would highly encourage anyone listening to head to John's website and to have a look at pictures of the house because we've touched on a few kind of high-level design elements today. There's some wonderful content out there where John takes you through all of the, the design thoughts and the process, but it was been great picking your mind and understanding some of the, the processes you went through and experiences that led you to this point. And congratulations again on an absolutely beautiful house and a lovely, healthy home. Um, you should be very proud. And uh, thank you so much for showing me around. Oh, thanks for coming to visit. I'm glad you finally got to come. <laughs> <laughs> Better late than never. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> this has been Hearing Architecture proudly sponsored by Brickworks. Thank you so much for listening and thank you so much to our guest in this episode, John Elway. We're very grateful for your time and we can't wait to see the future projects you design for your clients and we hope you get to design another house for yourself in the future. Our sponsor, Brickworks, also produce architecture podcasts hosted by modernist fanatic and comedian Tim Ross. You can find The Art of Living, Architects Abroad and The Power of Two at brickworks.com.au or your favourite podcast platform. The more support we get from you, the more episodes we get to make. So if you'd like to show your support, please rate, review and subscribe to Hearing Architecture in your favourite podcast app. If you want to know more about what the Australian Institute of Architects is doing to support architects and the community, please visit architecture.com.au. This is a production by the Australian Institute of Architects Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. The Institute production team was Madeline Jenkins and Claudia McCarthy, and the Imagine production team was Genevieve Vella, Sam McQueenie, Myron Montero, Rohanna Fullerton, and Bridie O'Toole. Written and directed by Daniel Moore. 
This content is brought to you by the Australian Institute of Architects, Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. This content does not take into account specific circumstances and should not be relied on in that way. This content does not constitute legal, financial, insurance or other types of advice. You should seek independent verification of advice before relying on this content in circumstances where loss or damage may result. The Institute endeavours to publish content that is accurate at the time it is published, but does not accept responsibility for content that may or will become inaccurate over time.